The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. bit scotch and listen up it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blight this is Jeff Maysillik here to ask show number 92 with guests Neil Hudson Steve DeMarco Stephen Salazar Nigel Watling Stephen R. Woodward Volker Will and Gianpaolo Carraro recorded live Friday December 3rd 2004 .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net Training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet, ASPNet, and C-Sharp glasses. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's cranky from staying up all night writing a web service client for his TRS-80, Carl Franklin! Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Maciolik in the studio, the soundboard monkey. Thank you. Here thank in you. .NET Rocks. And yes, the disclaimer is alive and well. That was a joke last week when we said we didn't want a disclaimer. And um, Rory, not here today. So, Jeff, I may, maybe you could have a little banter with me instead of Rory. Well, sure. Okay. I can be your pseudo-Rory. You can be my bitch, baby. Well, I didn't say I could be your bitch. All right, well. Uh, Rory <laughs> is out in Las Vegas. I'm so, Oh, wrong show. That was Mondays. Uh, Rory is out in Las Vegas having meetings with Microsoft people that he can't uh, blow off, but uh, he gives his warm regards and wishes he could be here with his fellow employees, many of which... Uh, are probably way, way, way higher up the ladder of Microsoft than he is. He didn't say that. I'm just adding that. But before we get to um, you know what the, an an interesting conversation with seven Microsofties and uh, and thanks a lot, guys, for making my job so easy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll hear from them in a minute. Uh, I do want to read some mail, and because uh, you know. We didn't want people to think that we weren't doing any mail. It's just that we hadn't been really getting any. So uh, this one came from Benjamin Wu, who is a longtime listener and does hang out in the chat room and has heaped praise upon us. And uh, this was praise for Mondays. Hi, Carl. Uh, angle bracket, Mondays praise. Mood equals slimy, angle bracket. <laughs> Mondays, great. Love the new format. Karen Greenwald has a hot voice. Jeff has great hair, slash Monday's praise. <laughs> what is it with my hair, Carl? I, I didn't say anything. They picked up on that you had nice hair. I don't know. Bizarre. I think it was Rory who started that thing. Yeah, it's usually Rory's fault. Yeah. Uh, next, sla- uh, angle bracket, .NET rocks praise. Mood equals wanting DNR to tour the UK. 
angle bracket. There's a reason Don's called, in my head anyway, The Don. Fantastic to hear the show back in the old format, etc., 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 slash .net rocks praise. So the real question is, which mode of creepings more likely to get me swag? Shall I crawl to you in your DNR capacity, since although you don't read the mail anymore, it is back to your roots? Or in your Monday's capacity, since you read the mail? Well, you know, guy, well, you know, we just take, we get, we don't get mail for two weeks, and people are like, you know, .NET rocks has changed forever, man. Anyway, back to the real point. I've put my main computer textbook online. This is what I've been learning all my computer stuff from. Do you think it's a good one? I'm not too sure myself. I mean, I haven't heard anyone talk about punch cards for a while. Is this one of those technologies <laughs> that's now so passe that no one ever talks about it anymore or what? And then he's got, uh, you know, angle bracket forward slash irony angle bracket. Anyway, here it is. And we've got a shrinkster URL to his computer textbook shrinkster.com slash 2L9, 2L9, and I'm going, I'm going there now, and uh, oh, going there. Oh, wow. I'm going there. I'm still going there. Hang on a second. Yeah, I stole all the bandwidth from the site. I think it's running off of How one it of the works. computers it has on the cover. <laughs> the computer, a ladybird book. Oh, boy. This is like 1971 and the revised edition, 1979. Wow, he's actually put he's actually put parts of this book up here. Hey, this is this oh is, wow, this is pretty cool. Wow, he looks 24, 26. He's got uh, different scans of the different editions. This is actually really very nice. Yeah, this thank is you, cool. Benjamin. Wow, and he says, "Let me know what you think, Jen Benjamin." Uh, uh, he says, "P.S. I wasn't joking about the swag. Well, guess what, man." I feel so filled with Christmas cheer. I'm going to send you a .NET Rocks hoodie. Oh! Yeah, this definitely deserves a DNR hoodie. It's got pictures of core memory and the theory Very of operation. Cool. <laughs> it's awesome. got tapes and stuff. <laughs> uh, this is the kind of stuff we used to see on ads for like Control Data Institute. Learn how to be a data processor, programmer, technician. Data input monkey. Okay. Well, anyway, I have another... Guest suggestion uh, from Randy Given, who wants Francesco Belena to come on DNR. Francesco, this is a call to you, man. Come on the show. We do want to talk to you and bring your sacks. Uh, let's see. Show comments and feedback. This is from Danny Figueres. Hey there, guys. First comment. Downloads. I have known the name of Carl Franklin for a long time, but only recently heard of .NET Rocks and how much info is on the shows. I suspect you guys are just hitting critical mass with MSDN linking to you and show getting better known. I hope server power and internet bandwidth do not become a problem. As a matter of fact, Jeff and I were just talking about that. Some of you have had problems with the downloads cutting off midstream, and we basically didn't have any kind of throttling connection-wise or bandwidth-wise, and we're not sure, but we're going to watch it this week and, and see if, you know, we, we cut it down a little bit to see if we can't control that. And uh, we'll figure it out one way or another. Just bear with us. Next comment. I have been a VB and C and SQL coder for some time and have a few comments on VB6 versus .NET and such. I agree with Billy Hollis. .NET needs to make some of the simple grunge work simpler. 
VS Net 05 looks like it's going to be real close. Here are a few examples of where the problems have come up for me in selling, in quotes, .NET. Large corporation has a very strict network policy. Users have Office 2000 and Windows 2000. I can use Access 2000 to build a database app for them without any install problems, etc. But installing .NET on even 10 PCs would need an act of Congress, so to speak. So while .NET would be better, SQL Server would be better, the only option I can do is the time and budget for the small apps is access-based. The only option I can do in the time and budgeted for the small apps is access-based packages. And to that I say, life sucks, man. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. I work with a CPA who consults for another corporation. There we can probably load .NET on machines, but even there it has to be explained. So explain it. You know? Listen to Tim Huckabee. Listen to uh, Billy Hollis. You know, you got to tell you got to you got to you got to tell them to put their hands on the screen and drink that Kool Aid. Drink that Kool Aid. <laughs> All right. Um, and with VS dot net two thousand three versus Access, the forms layout and reports engine and Access make the small apps so very easy to build. I would almost like to see an Access dot net in some ways or at least the O5 forms builders to let me work like Access does. Have you seen what O5 lets you do with Windows Forms? No. It's unbelievable. Drag and drop data editor, done. I mean, it's really, really simple. That's that's kind of scary in a way. I actually remember you guys talking about debating whether or not that's a good thing on the show. Oh, you, know, of- you know, it's a good thing because it's not like the plumbing sucks, and it's not like you can't do really, really good things. It's just that if you want those extra high-level things, they're there too. Yeah. You don't have to use them. It, Nobody's holding a gun to your head. Yeah. And they're not, it's not like they're hiding the code that it writes from you. You can always get exactly. to it by expanding it and, and editing the thing that says, do not edit this code, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> anyway, love the shows. Now to get back to work, Danny Figueres, and he's in St. Petersburg, Florida. Danny, we're going to send you a .NET Rocks mug for being uh, so kind. And uh, one more th- one more letter from Mike D, Michael DeKonig, who says, hey, Carl and Rory, what about Jeff, man? Yeah. Now, if you're going to send us email, say, hey, Carl, Rory, and Jeff, or, yeah. or hey, Carl, and guys, or just, hey, guys. Yeah. I mean, without me, there's no show, you jerks. <laughs> Come on. All right. I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoy the show, and especially the latest one with Billy Hollis. I'm from an area further south than Billy where we do say winders, and there were a few things mentioned on the show that I wanted to follow up on. I love the way Billy Hollis says that, winders. 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 Winders application. Now, you're going to write a winders application over a web application. I love that. I could listen to him t- like, like those ladies said. I could listen to him talk all day. <laughs> I recently started listening to DNR every week after sampling a few of the shows on the most recent MSDN events DVD. Now I download the recorded shows on Monday and I listen to them on my commute on Tuesday morning. Maybe the MSDN events tour is one reason for your download spike in November. That could very well be. My experience with VB started with V5, but I've been working with .NET since 1.0. Although most of my work in VB5 was Windows applications, now most of my work is with ASP.NET. But I love the idea of smart clients, and I'm trying to find a way to get back into working in the Windows Forms arena. Billy mentioned a key concept of having a thin facade layer 
for data transport or what he said Microsoft calls a channel adapter. I tried to search MSDN for that term, but didn't really get any meaningful links. Could you guys point me to some information on this? I did find a cool Adventures in VBNet article by Billy Hollis about extender providers. I really want to write one just so I can use the term. (laughs) Anyway, uh, keep on rocking. I'm looking forward to your upcoming shows and especially show number 100, Mike D. Well, Mike, we'll... uh, uh, thanks a lot. We'll uh, we'll send you a uh, .NET Rocks mug, and uh, but we're gonna have to get your mailing address. So we'll do that. So Carl, I gotta ask you a question. Okay. D- do you actually ever get tired of all these people sucking up to you? No, I never get tired. I love it actually. <laughs> awesome. You know, it would be it would be bad for me if I let it go to my head, but I know it doesn't. I mean, you know, it's not like I go to bed at night thinking, "Hey, man, I'm Carl Franklin." Man, people you know? are writing emails to me. Yeah. And then I have this show and like thousands of people listen. You know what I'm thinking when I go to bed at night? Ah, oh, shit. I got to take the garbage out and get up, put on my damn pants and get up, take the garbage out. It's just life, folks. No big deal. Yeah. I, I noticed though people have been blogging about my hair and apparently now emailing you about my hair. So my hair is getting to my head, <laughs> so to speak. Did you ever think people would be writing Blog- to a show that thousands of people listen to every week? about your hair no well i don't know my hair is pretty impressive all right i mean well that's enough stupidity don't you think so who have we got carl well my guests tonight are seven folks from microsoft and uh, the overall topic is windows server 2003 although we're going to be talking a lot about windows about security 64-bit computing and j2ee migration And uh, the guests are as follows. Neil Hudson coordinates the developer evangelism for Windows and Microsoft and is responsible for a multinational team, including French, uh, German, English, American, Venezuelan, Italian, and Swiss, that focuses on technology from security, collaboration, management, 64-bit computing, and migration. How does he cope? One wonders. Uh, Steve DeMarco, PM, project manager for Windows evangelism is responsible for stitching together all the external demands from the Microsoft field, customers, and partners to the technical resources and programs driven by Microsoft. Technical evangelists Stephen Salazar, Nigel Watling, and Stephen R. Woodward have been specializing in the area of security within Microsoft, all the way from writing secure apps, patch management, and identity, access management to looking at the future of technologies, which will be part of Windows R2 and Longhorn Server. We'll find out what that means in a minute. Uh, Technical evangelist Volker Will is responsible for developer evangelism of 64-bit computing, both with partners and customers, but also through large events such as WinHack, TechEd, and something they call Route 64, Find out why 64-bit is the new 32. Uh, And finally, architect and evangelist Gianpaolo Carraro is still recovering from just completing a J2EE migration workshop for partners in the Microsoft BLD20, uh, that would be Building 20, lab. And we're going to get his thoughts and feedback from the event that finished just recently, just just today, I think, maybe yesterday. So... Let's see if seven Microsoft people can all say .NET Rocks at the same time. Ready? One, two, three. .NET Rocks. 
Well, this is going to be more fun than a mouse at a burlesque show. <laughs> yeah. Trying to coordinate everybody. So um, why don't I have you go through your uh, through the list here and just say hi and, and, and speak a little bit so that we can identify your voices because I'm probably going to, you know, I can't see you guys, obviously, and I, it's going to be tough to tell who's who. So starting with Neil, how are you? Hey, I'm fine. Neil Hudson. So uh, you guys are all in Redmond right now, right? We are. We um, so we're all all based in Building 18. Uh, we okay. uh, move around a bit, but um, Building 18 is our current base. Good. Okay, Steve Demarco, say hi. H- Hello. How are you? I am well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good. 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 Neil uh, Neil made sure that he wanted to have somebody on the phone who was actually uh, American by origin, but I hail from Montana, so I don't know if that actually counts. <laughs> um, one of the things I get to do is, is work as a program manager across uh, this fun team and uh, just working to try to make sure that the things, the challenging messages and things that these guys know inherently in their head are able to scale uh, you know, pretty broadly and very deeply uh, across uh, our channel partners and our customers worldwide and uh, cool. work very closely with them in executing some of their events. All right. Steven Salazar, how are you, sir? Pretty good. How are you? doing fine what's what's going on in your neck of the woods this evening well right now i'm, I'm currently working in the team uh focusing mostly in the area of identity and access management okay and nigel you are also working on that same team and um, i'm in a related team and okay my role is to evangelize security, talk about security to isvs and um persuade them of the importance of using uh, secure coding techniques in their applications and also how to use the security features in the platform. Okay. Is that a dog I hear in the background there? Not my dog. No? no somebody's no, not dog. me barking either. That's <laughs> uh, my dog. I guess he wants to be on the show as well. Oh, okay. Uh, and Stephen Woodward. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so I'm a, another technical evangelist in Neil's team. Um, okay. specializing in collaboration and now moving on to work with Stephen Salazar on the identity management side. So okay. I was a technical evangelist for Live Communication Server for about, oh, I know, two and a half, almost three years. Um, mm-hmm. Now moving on to, as I said, to look more at the identity management and what we're doing there in the future for R2 and Longhorn Server. Okay. And so you three, what what is Windows R2? So R2 will be the, the release of Windows Server that will come after SP1. So build on SP1, um, but we have a kind of an unwritten, well, a written rule, I guess, is that uh, we don't put new features into service packs. So R2 will actually be built on top of SP1 of Windows Server 2003, but will actually okay. include some new features. Um, for example, um, Active Directory Federated Services will be in there. Um, someone help me out okay. with some other ones. But um, I guess the other one that's in there is uh, Quarantine for VPN. Um, there's probably a couple of other features that we've probably announced publicly. There will be publicly, a new feature but... of uh, SharePoint in there. Okay, I get the idea. Yes, new features in Atom as well. Okay. And uh, Volker Will? Yeah, I'm focusing on the uh, most exciting part of the platform, which is 64-bit. <laughs> and as okay. you mentioned earlier, 64-bit is the new 32 and okay, and that means what? <laughs> that means what? That means that by the end of next year, um, every system, every every uh, box you buy at a computer store or Best Buy's or whatever, uh, will 
be equipped with a processor that will be capable of executing 64-bit code. I see. So the new 32-bit, you wouldn't say 32-bit, but the new 32. It's the new 32, yeah. Exactly. I get it. Okay, and finally, Jean-Paulo. Yes, hi. Um, you, you forgot to, to mention my highly popular blog. Ah, it's not on my sheet, that's why. What is your popular blog? Two posts and about one comment. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, um, no, uh, more seriously, one of the, the areas I'm covering uh, as part of the Windows Evangelism Initiative is the um, Java G2E migration. Right. So, I actually joined Microsoft three, three years ago from a, a Linux J2 background. So I really want to help my old friends in the Java world to see to see the light, the same light that yeah. I saw, and join <laughs> this better place that .NET is. Okay. And, uh, and I, as you said before, I just finished running a workshop uh, literally two hours ago uh, in our lab here in Building 20, uh, with 20 partners from around the world, from Republican, uh, Dominican Republic, Canada, South Africa, uh, Canada, and all, all the places, uh, came over and learned the, uh, all the tools and techniques and best practices to successfully migrate application from Java to .NET. Would you say there are representatives of both blue and red states there? <laughs> I think they were mainly blue states. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, is that going to generate some email? Okay. Well, very good. Well, I'm really glad to have all you guys on the show. And I just got to say, before you guys start uh, going on about what you're talking about, that I love Windows Server 2003. Thank you very much. I love it. I love it. I love it. Not only is it wicked fast, but I like the fact that it's locked down. And I like the fact that the uh, Internet Information Server is at the kernel level. Thank you very much. I love the fact that, uh, uh, you know, images get cached at the kernel level. I love the interaction with uh, ASP.NET. I think it's great. And thank you for making such a great product, Microsoft. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> hey, Neil, do you, do you want to hire these guys? seems to be pretty hard. Uh, I think we're <laughs> You're hired, man. Well, I, Neil, are, are, would you call yourself the ringleader in no, this I, conversation? I so I, uh, yeah, I've I've been looking after evangelism for for uh, quite a number of years. I uh, I joined Microsoft a long time ago, um, and, then, and in those days, I thought I would be here for, for a couple of years and then move somewhere else. And uh, the, the companies kept kept me hooked um, all that time, and uh -huh. uh, it's been quite a quite a roller coaster ride all the way through from. You know, NT three one three five one four, and and to where we are today with uh, with with it with two thousand three and and so is Pat one. But uh, no, it's 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 very interesting. I mean, as as Volker probably said, one of the things that we're we're finding that's really getting uh, a lot of interest in the market at the moment is is sixty four bit computing. Right. You know, we, we've it's been. You know, it's been very much a, a niche market for for quite some time. Yeah, it certainly has, yeah. And, you know, we moved, you know, about uh, four years ago from 16 to 32. Uh, there were lots of demands for for more memory. There were obviously issues about pointers and and, uh, and making applications which would um, uh, virtualize correctly. Um, and we never thought that we'd, the, the world would ever hit the four gigabytes uh, virtual address space of Windows. But uh, it's surprising we have uh, a large number of ISVs now. 
and uh, quite a few customers who who just need more memory and need a need a faster processor architecture. And so that's mm-hmm. that's what's one of the things that's really uh, driving us. Uh, and I guess the second one is is security. And you now we had a, a a big effort last year within within Microsoft to make sure that everybody who built software on the platform really knew how to build secure code. Right. Um, and now we're continuing that on and, and also looking at what new features we can put in the platform uh, to make sure that uh, also for the for those home users out there, um, as well as the corporate developers, uh, they're, they're far more secure on our platform. Let me ask you this about um, 64-bit computing, because it seems to me that, you know, it's not only the servers, but the client, you know, the desktop PCs that sort of drive the prices down. Because that's you know that's really the the mass market for PCs. Are there any is there any real application? I mean, obviously on a server, more memory is good, more you know disk addressable, uh, you know better SQL servers, awesome. On the client, what you know what kinds of advantages does a client computer get with sixty four bit computing? Well, today, for example, we had uh, a meeting with an ISV who is big in digital content creation. And what these guys really see is not only their applications benefit from the more memory that is available on the Mm -hmm. client side as well as on the server, of course, but uh, what they also see is that the new system architecture introduced by Intel and by AMD gives them more compute power for their applications that uh, typically would, um, in a 32-bit world, run in a um, multi-system environment, Mm -hmm. perhaps. So they now can do stuff like a whole TV studio in a backpack. This is what they showed us. And they work on a project where they have the whole software running on one high-end system you can stuff into a backpack and Mm do a TV studio on the road, for example. So for software that's written for 64-bit, it means better better performance is what you're saying? Yeah. What, what these guys uh, are looking for is they do video rendering, etc. So what they're looking for is better performance. So better performance for the same price if possible because they can't charge more because their customers already uh, you know, demand more performance for less price. So yeah. 64-bit enables them to deliver. What about uh, laptops? Any CPUs that are, you know, suited for laptops? Absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, we don't have a camera here, so this is only radio, uh, which is already great. But uh, right in front of me is one of the new 64-bit laptops from Acer, these shiny red uh, Acer Ferrari laptops. They are equipped with a 64-bit processor already. But this is only one of... uh, a broad variety of hardware vendors that deliver 64-bit laptops today already. Hmm. So you mentioned graphics. What about, you know, I, I would imagine that video and audio processing, not video graphics, you know, like game video, but but actual video signal and, gra- and, and audio processing is probably going to be much better on a 64-bit system, don't you think? Well, it, it, it's better in a way that... Um, for an average home user creating your, uh, you know, uh, vacation video or mm-hmm. uh, taping your children and 
later record uh, um, transfer the recordings to the PC uh, mm -hmm. to a 64-bit PC will give you uh, way more performance when you convert this and burn this onto a DVD, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, because obviously you're dealing with lots of gigs of of data there. This is yeah. exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one, uh, just one, one thing to to add also is that you know, what we've done a, a great job at, with is making sure that even 32-bit applications can actually see some advantages from actually running on the the new 64-bit OS. So we've had <clears throat> some some ISVs again in that that digital content space that um, are even just just taking their existing 32-bit applications, uh, putting them on the 64-bit OS actually see mm -hmm. some pretty dramatic Im improvements in performance. And mm -hmm. and the areas that they're seeing this is is in, in the, the disk I.O. So because the the kernel now has more more virtual memory and mm -hmm. the way that we actually did deal with with disk with the new architecture means that the, the performance of just accessing very large files from disk is, is really has has improved uh, dramatically. Yeah I imagine. Um, and and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, .NET 2.0 is uh, has support for 64-bit through and through, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Not only uh, the framework 2.0, but also the framework 1.1 1 .1, uh, is supported on 64-bit and enables uh, applications to be either executed on a 64-bit version of the framework or uh, in compatibility mode, if you want, on the 32-bit version of the framework on 64-bit. Okay, so framework 1.1 will there's a 64-bit version of it. Is that what you're saying, or no? There's a there's a 32-bit version of it only, right. but right. this is supported uh, like any other application in quotes sure. uh, on 64-bit. And and is this just with the AMD chips that that have this 32-bit uh, processor sort of embedded in it? Tell me about that. What's uh, what's the deal with the Intel and AMD chips? And I know I because I know that AMD had the upper hand at one time. They had a chip that did both really really well. What's 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 the latest on that? Well, uh, Intel as well as AMD have 64-bit uh, processors that are capable of executing 32-bit code, and the Windows operating system supports the execution of 32-bit code on the 64-bit OS. Okay. And uh, we started off our 64-bit story with uh, the Itanium processor four right. years ago about, and uh, the Itanium processor is a complete new design, uh, a complete new development made by Intel and Hewlett-Packard, mm -hmm. and AMD has... Um, took a different approach. They developed an, a processor that is natively capable executing 32-bit applications. And um, since a couple of months, Intel has the same kind of architecture, also the same processor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called EM64T. And these two, so the AMD processors, 64-bit processors, and the processor from Intel, the EM64T, the Xeon EM64T, mm -hmm. are capable of executing 32-bit code natively on the processor itself. So there's no emulation layer whatsoever. So there's a better 32-bit uh, okay. compatibility story for these. And AMD, I think, was the first one to have that sort of level of sophistication, right? Yes, this is Yeah. It. 
What do, what do you think uh, in terms of comparing? I know they're partners and stuff, and you don't want to make anybody mad, but in terms of uh, comparing the two, are there any similarities or differences or anything that makes, you know, features that make one more suited for servers, let's say, and one more suited for clients? Or Oh, I see. Yeah, both are, are um, built with compatibility in mind, so maintaining compatibility with existing 32-bit applications and the Windows operating system running on top of these uh, architectures, so the EMD64 and the EM64T architecture, is built to support the execution of 32-bit apps and from, a, from an operating system perspective, both architectures look the same. All right. So there's no different binary we ship for but there isn't any difference in the caching or any other internal features that are more suited to servers or clients or whatever? Well, AMD has, uh, when it comes to addressing or, or yeah, addressing the memory, has uh, a different approach in how they handle uh, on the processor the memory access while uh, the Intel EM64T has still has its front-side bus architecture with yeah. a memory chip architecture in place. AMD has all this on the die. So if you want, there may be some sort of a benefit, yes. Okay, interesting. I think, I think time will tell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. We'll um, and, you know, it's, 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 um, it's interesting. I mean, both, both chip makers are out there in the marketplace now. Um, obviously, when we ship SP1, we'll have both the server version and also an XP version of 64-bit. And, you know, consumers will soon, you know, if there are, from, from our point of view, the code that for Windows is exactly the same. Uh, anybody writing apps, the code is exactly the same. Uh, but mm -hmm. obviously consumers will always choose uh, the best option. What applications out there that we might know are being written or targeted for 64-bit that, uh, you know, the out-of-the-box kind of applications? Like who's stepping up to the plate here? Besides Microsoft, we know you guys will ship 32, you know, 64-bit apps. Notepad. 64-bit <laughs> Notepad, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, one of our our efforts in um, helping ISVs to migrate their applications to 64-bit, let me start with that, Okay. is that we have a lab here, the one John Paolo was um, using this week, the Building 20 lab, and uh, on a regular basis, we also host 64-bit uh, developer labs. And uh, while our initial goal was it to have the, I don't know, top 10, top 15, 20 ISVs from our perspective to help them migrate on 64-bit um, a year ago or so, even before that when we only had the Itanium world, um, this, this lab today is, uh, well, very, very frequent, visited by all sorts of ISVs yeah. across the board, uh, big names, infrastructure ISVs, but also ISVs that have, uh, you know, 32-bit applications and that see that 64-bit offers them new market opportunities. Yeah. But you, are, you, are you seeing a trend like in data-intensive applications mostly? Um, to some extent, we have uh, seen in the beginning, especially when we started with 64-bit, we've seen a lot of uh, database-related uh, or data-related uh, uh, vendors or database vendors that came to the lab and uh, started migrating to 64-bit or, or wanted to tweak and tune their applications, mm -hmm. while 
Today, it is like, like more and more the works, typical workstation type of uh, application, like I mentioned earlier, digital content creation, etc. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And so when can we uh, expect um, some bits? Well, um, next year, we'll ship uh, Service Pack 1. As you may know, 64-bit from a Microsoft perspective is already around for quite some time, but only on Itanium. But with Service Pack 1 at the same time or around the same time of Service Pack 1, beginning mm -hmm. next year, we will ship uh, the support, the operating system support for what we call the X64 architecture. So okay. the AMD64 and the Xeon EM64T stuff. And are you guys trying to coordinate that as best you can with the release of .NET 2.0 or does it, do you have your own internal schedule? Well, um, as for all applications um, and framework for for uh, for now, let's take talk, take the framework as an application. Mm -hmm. um, as for all applications, we can't release the applications at this, or most of the applications can't be released at the same time as DOS because testing has to be done on the final bits of the OS before right. we ship that. So uh, we expect that shortly after the availability of SP1 will ship the framework. Okay, so SP1 is going to come after the frame or come before first. That's that makes a lot of sense. Well, that that's awesome. I can't wait. I can't wait to check it out. Any of you other guys have anything to add about uh 64-bit? I think 64-bits are absolutely inevitable. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of timing. Um, a lot of my discussions I've had with uh, ISVs is, is just about when they should bring their product to market to support 64-bit. And if you look at the, the analysts, then uh, it seems to be pretty clear that it's, it's sooner rather than later. And it's always good to catch the waves of Microsoft technology if you're an ISV and to try and uh, synchronize your product to, to ship where, when our bits go. A question from the chat room. Which applications we know today won't work on 64-bit CPUs? In 64-bit Windows. Um, well, uh, as for any um, cross-platform support, some of the applications may not work out of the box. 32-bit uh, applications on the 64-bit OS. A typical mm -hmm. example, for example, and we had uh, one of our applications, one of our poster child, SQL Server, um, did not well, run on 64-bit in the beginning because you could not install it. Oh. Um, the way how installation on a 64-bit OS works is for a 64-bit application, you need a 64-bit installer. Right. 32-bit application, you need a 32-bit installer. Sure. This is to maintain compatibility with the file system and with the registry. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the, the typical examples. Other uh, examples where applications did not run in the first place is version checking. If you mm -hmm. do version checking and don't expect a version number uh, of a 64-bit operating system, you may refuse to, to run to sure. even though you can be installed. Sure. The vast majority of 32-bit applications, and I'm not talking only about Microsoft applications here, they simply install and run on a 64-bit OS. One of our goals for the 64-bit OS is to maintain compatibility with 32-bit applications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. 
So most of the, if it's, it's not a matter of the binary is actually not running, but it's usually some gotcha like an installer or some explicit check. Yeah. It is yeah. not about uh, that the binary code doesn't execute on the processor. It usually has something to do with the infrastructure like install, for example, version checking and this. And, and what do you guys know about, uh, being, about .NET programming against the 64-bit platform? Can we talk about that? How's that going to change? Like, how, what difference is it going to make to me? Do I have to worry about anything as a programmer? The, the cool stuff uh, uh, when it comes to the framework is you develop once and execute on all platforms where the framework is supported and where you're uh, talking about the compact framework, uh, where your features are supported. Right. So 32-bit framework, 64-bit framework, mm-hmm. feature parity, building an application for the framework, Without doing any uh, com interop or API calls to the operating system, these applications will run just out of the box. Applications that um, do com interop or call API calls of the operating system um, have to be uh, tested, but they should run if the components are available on all the operating systems. Okay, good. Good, good. And what about the price of memory? Do you think that uh, that the release of 64-bit servers and operating systems is going to drive down the price of RAM again? I know it's pretty pretty amazing. I haven't checked in a while, but what is what does a gig of RAM go for these days? Well, I don't know. Like a hundred bucks? I don't know. But do you think do you think that we're going to find uh, you know Mondo Jagundo RAM chips? Out there. <laughs> well, these guys, these guys are working on uh, uh, two gigabyte uh, uh, socket. Um, what's it called? Sticks or four gigabyte sticks. So uh-huh. we'll definitely see these these enormous uh, memory sticks coming up very soon. And um, the more the sixty four bit uh, hardware platforms penetrate the, the market, and the more Windows systems we have around with all these demanding, uh, memory demanding and performance demanding applications like digital content creation, for example, we'll see uh, that memory will go down because the demand will go up. The prices will go down. Right. And so what do you think, uh, so how much um, how much memory space can, you know, RAM space can a 64-bit processor address? From a, from a 60, uh, 64-bit processor, uh, or let's talk about the operating system. A okay. total of virtual address space, like what we mentioned before, what Neil mentioned before, uh, on a 32-bit system is 4 gigabyte. On a 64-bit system, this is 16 terabytes of memory. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> do you think we're going to find, you know, how long is it going to be before we have, you know, 120 gig memory sticks? Things like that. <laughs> wow, 120 gig memory sticks. I mean, I mean, you know, we're going to look back on this in 10 years and go, those guys are so... Con- you know, you know? It was just the old 64-bit days, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, what what, are we, what do you think that the next jump in memory stick is going to be for a 64-bit operating, you know, processor? I, I guess... The next, the next big uh, uh, jump in in memory will be something like eight or sixteen. Eight or sixteen gigs, yeah. But yeah, well, it's just just a guess. So, how are the motherboards going to handle 
<laughs> I mean, are you going to have a have to have an extra box just for your RAM chips? You yeah. know, it's... yeah, maybe, maybe you need a little <laughs> box. It may also be that they just fit into the uh, that they will come up with a nice design where they can uh, driving down the uh, the or improving the technology, driving down the size of the yeah. chips themselves, and so you we may end up having a, a laptop with you know let's say a terabyte or so. The, the next, next question, question uh, the disk, is, disk space is also going up. Imagine when you need to hibernate. You yeah, hibernate well, like 128 gig. Uh, well, uh, that's why I'm thinking that was that was my next question. I mean, why why not just have non volatile RAM? That uh, you know, why do we? Is it are we going to come to a point where we don't need the disk at all? Yeah, for example, this is one of the one of the cool stories when it comes to uh, database applications like SQL Server, for example. Yeah. One of the major benefits for these apps is they just run in memory. They keep all the data in memory. Once it's loaded, uh, it's lightning fast. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't pull until, the plug, yeah? Yeah, until you pull the plug, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Sure. All right, good, good enough. So um, let's move on to security. So, uh, who wants to tackle that topic? Are you sure you finished with sixty-four bit? I, I think we're, sh- I think we're done, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nigel. That's all right. Cut me off in my prime. That's fine. Um, you had one. Uh, well, oh. no, not yet. Um, Still hoping. I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> others might beg to differ. Uh, yeah, so I'm the, the security evangelist, and my job's to try and talk to ISVs about security and um, try and take Microsoft seriously when they when we talk about uh, security and that, that it's um, um, it's an issue for the industry, I guess. The whole industry is um, a threat from attackers, from hackers, whatever you want to call right. them. So I have one word for you, and I want your reaction. Firefox. Firefox. Um, what what sort of reaction are you looking for? It's a it's a good browser, um, which is all, which is also I I think had um, security vulnerabilities already, but the, there's no you guys anybody that develops software knows that it's it's impossible to write um, perfect software. All software has bugs. Those bugs sure. may or may not be uh, security bugs, um, but if it is a security bug, you can. Just look at the the perceptions of Microsoft as a as a as a company overall through through yeah. the eyes of um, somebody who's looking at our security vulnerabilities in the past. Right. I I totally I totally understand that. Um, you know, Mike. I mean, we used to do we used to do a segment on the show called the Linux Vulnerability of the Week, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we would go out to uh, you know the Linux uh, vulnerabilities posting site, and you know th- as recently as that day there would be some major heinous bug in the kernel that would be like some sort of memory overflow, you know, elevated permission possibility, this kind of thing. And uh, we did it to prove the point that, you know, Microsoft software isn't the only software that has bugs. Other operating systems have bugs, but people target Microsoft because they're the big dog. But to the guy who needs to secure his computer when the whole world is, you know, doing drive-by shootings on your desktop via your browser, you know, what do you do? You you use another browser. And so I myself have even resorted to using Firefox on certain machines just because I didn't have the energy to battle the, the constant barrage of worms and other crap that kept slipping in there. Well, there's, there's two things to this. Um, 
One is that you you choose some you choose a different product because the one that you you traditionally use um, is being attacked because it has such a large market share. Right. Um, and simply by using it, you increase the market share of that product, I and totally therefore you know. can make it a more um, attractive target for, sure. for attackers. See, so you, you can't really win by that. No, but you can you can win some the, time. The thing that the, what we need to do that Microsoft needs to do is to is to make our products more secure out of the box. We've, we've done a lot of we made a lot of progress about um, bolting down our products and being secure by default. And right. I really appreciate the comments you said about Windows Server two thousand three. Oh, that's awesome. And you know, initially when people install that, um, especially well, it's my reaction as well when I install it is my God, nothing works anymore because yeah. out of the box it was it was secure. You know, you don't need, you know, why would why would a consumer want IS enabled by default on their right. on their client box? There's, there's no reason for that. Right. And we've taken that lesson on board and, and all of the software that we're we're shipping is designed to be secure out of the box. And if you need a feature, then you go ahead and turn it on. And and this is a, a cultural shift for Microsoft because in the past yeah. In the history of the of the desktop computer, it's all about getting as many features out as possible, and right. it's features that sold your your, your product. But that that doesn't Absolutely. really apply anymore. I mean, it doesn't matter how good your product is, if you have a number of um, very public, compromising vulnerabilities in your application, then people will stop using you. And you've you've just illustrated that by saying, well, I've, I'm using you know you're using Firefox because because of the vulnerabilities that have been found in IE. It's, it's demonstrable that people will do that. Yep, but yep. the challenge I find is that ISVs um, oftentimes have their, their head in the sand and they think, well, you know, obviously attackers are going after Microsoft because they're, they're going after the operating system and, right. and Microsoft has a, a lot of um, share of the market, so it's, it's a good target. But <laughs> attackers aren't... Out, out there just for um, attacking the good name of Microsoft. They're out there sure. to make money. They're out there to find confidential information. They're out there to do evil. Right. They're not really discriminating about the about who they you know which the vectors are that they use to attack people. That they'll use whatever operating systems out there. And there are vulnerabilities, as you say, in every single operating system, in every right, single right. product. Do you, and think, if you're do you an think ISV, that the- yeah. Just imagine if if you you have your application and it's out there in the market and somebody um, makes an example of your of your application and you have a you don't have a response to that you don't have a um, a patching process in place yeah. your entire business can be undermined you know right. just imagine you, you as an ISV if somebody attacks your uh, software and your software is shown to be vulnerable people will switch they will switch right. to a competing product and that's that's your whole business. At sure. stake, you know, you've got to you've got to do the work, and that's something that became very clear at Microsoft. Why we put such a lot of effort into security, it wasn't just philanthropy. It's because it was having a, a huge impact on our on our business, and we, we yeah. have to do the right thing. And the right thing is security first, features afterwards. And and it's it's been a complete culture and mindset change here. Now, do you think that uh, the the problems that people have had in the past with IE are more operating system issues or are they IE issues? Like I find a lot of them have to do with people running as an admin and then some script gets installed and downloaded. Somehow these people figure out how to fool it into downloading and executing something that is running with your full admin privileges 
And, uh, you know, that, that in and of itself, I think, is a flaw in the operating system where it can't tell the difference between code that was run by a user's input, you know, a user executing something and code that was run by other code. And so what are you guys doing in, you know, in the next generation of operating systems to sort of help with that? Well, before we get on to the next generation of operating systems, um, I think that the critical message that I communicate to anybody using uh, Windows is to make sure that they are using Service Pack 2, Windows XP Service Pack 2. Yes. Um, that is much, much more secure than any other consumer operating system we've had before. Right. right. And it's, I take your point about running as admin. Um, there's two things, right? One, one is having some bug in the in the code, whether it's the operating system or a particular application. And perhaps mm -hmm. I shouldn't go down that line because the, e, the, e, the EU might take objection as to whether a particular application is part of the OS or whether it should be a, a separate application. True, true. But um, once an application or a piece of code is compromised by an attacker, what the attacker can do is entirely down to the rights that the, the code that they've compromised is running under. Yes. If it's if it's just running as a local user or as your user credentials, that hacker can do only unless it compromises the system further. It can only do what you can do or the, the that particular um, account can do. If yeah, you're running yeah. as admin, that the hacker can do whatever an admin can do on that box, which is pretty much anything they damn well please. Right. Um, and one of the most entertaining demos you can see about security is to see. Um, a SQL Server attack using going through um, SQL injection, where right. it's, it's very common that um, you have a live website and underneath it there's SQL Server, and it's it's just running as SA. It's it's very common. It's less common these days, but it's still common. I, I'm sad to say. Yeah. And a hacker can just go through a bit of SQL injection where they in, inject a bit of SQL to to gain access to the SQL Server. Sure. And then once they get in through that, because the, the SQL Server is running as admin, they can hack into your network and download um, using Trivial FTP um, some tools, and they're on their way. They can do whatever and it's they really want, frightening yeah. how quickly a, a hacker can get into your corporate network and do some real... Or even just dropping tables and you yeah. know, destroying yeah, you, your database. You can pretty much do what, do what you want. It's, it, if... if there are people listening to this who say SQL injection, I don't know what that is. No, we've talked about it a couple of times. And indeed, yeah. given presentations where you, you sort of see people going pale in the room, yeah. dashing out on their <laughs> mobile. I did that this week. I was talking to a group of people and and there was a couple in the in the crowd that didn't know about SQL injection attacks. And, you know, I saw their faces turn red. One of them left the room. Yeah. They were like, you know, I got to check. The, the, there was one person I met who's, who shall remain nameless. Of course, this, this isn't somebody in Microsoft, but when they were doing their SQL injection demonstrations, they would actually surf around the uh, internet looking for a vulnerable site, and they'd actually do their SQL injection demonstration on a live site to really uh, drive home um, that, that this thing was a real problem and how you, you could... And he was like listing their tables. I, I don't know that he did any real damage to the site. He, he might have been... Uh, Especially if it was America, it might have gotten into trouble. Mm. Um, but it, it's really chilling what you can do through that. But yeah. to get back to my original thing about yep. XP, XP2, I, it it really should be uh, on everybody's uh, on everybody's machine because 
you have vulnerabilities in all code. We've already, we've already said that, but especially around IE and around XP, SP2 generally, it's a lot more locked down. Mm-hmm. So even if, well, there are, there are continue to be vulnerabilities that will be continue to be found, but because mm-hmm. the default security of XP is, is much higher now, even if there is a vulnerability, then you'll find that the, you're protected. And we've seen this even with recent vulnerabilities. You'll see that uh, maybe IE6 SP1 is um, vulnerable to, um, to to a particular attack. But in the XP SP2 code base, although IE has the same bug there, because I because uh, Windows XP SP2 is much more um, shut down, right. although the, the vulnerable code is there, the, the machine is infected because the hacker isn't able to um, get through that initial layer of defenses and exploit the vulnerable code un- underneath. So that, that's it's a consumer message rather than as well as a developer message. That, um, but the, for developers, they should actually make sure that their applications run cl- correctly on XPSP2 because yeah. security is the en- enemy of usability, right? The more secure you make something, the less usable it is. If I make my car more secure by giving it an immobilizer and, and having thumbprint or whatever, then they may, I have to do ex, I have to have extra steps to get into my car. It's less immediately usable. Whereas if I just have it um, unlocked and I, I can hotwire it, it's, it's a lot quicker to get into. I heard a rumor that there was going to be another version of IE. Is there? Uh, I don't know if, I, if I'm allowed to confirm that or not. But I'd, Microsoft is extremely paranoid about um, being challenged by other companies and always trying right. to be the best. And like, right. and Firefox is having some degree of success. So I really hope that that has some uh, stimulus within Microsoft, and that we. I'd like to see a managed code browser, because you know there you have much more control over security. It's odd that you know, it, not so much now, but I remember talking to companies who said they didn't want to install the .NET framework on a client computer because they thought it was a security risk. And I was like, "What are you nuts? It's probably the best thing you can do for your computer," you know. But, uh, well, all I would know, the say on the, the futures of the browser, I'd highly recommend trying to get um, Dave Massey, a good friend of ours, um, oh, yeah. in, a, in a conversation on what's happening with the browser. Okay. Um, former DHTML dude, um, he now blogs on IE. He's back being a senior program manager within the IE team. Um, and okay. he, could, he could really give you the lowdown on what's going, going on there rather right. than us trying to... Yeah, I didn't mean to put you guys on the hot seat for IE, but because um, you know, that's not your area, but... But it does seem to be on everybody's mind these days. Yeah, it's very, as regards um, futures um, and run it. You you made a fair criticism about the operating system, knowing um, the user context that an application is running in, and right. and sandboxing that a lot uh, more effectively. And, that, and that's certainly in the plans for Longhorn. Sure, because the frame the .NET framework now can walk up the stack and find out who called it. And, uh, you know, that's that's all part of code access security, and it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's, there's two things. Code code access security and um, standard user security are mm-hmm. complementary. They, they both have an effect. So code access security is about um, code, what code is able to do. So right. the, the whole problem behind, um, I don't know, the I love you virus. Um, the code came from untrusted source through through an email, and same as if you run code from the internet. Right. But when you run that code, it runs as your identity, so it can do anything that you can do. Right. 
the, the idea with code access security is that um, code will have varying levels of trust depending on where it comes from. If yes. On your hard disk, there's a high probability that it was installed by the administrator because typically you install programs as administrator. And therefore, right. it's, it's by default, it's, a, it's trusted code. From the, the internet or via an email, it's less trusted. So right. it shouldn't be able to format your hard disk, right? right. That, that's not a thing that code coming down from the internet should do. But there should, so that, that's the idea between code access yeah. security. User security is different. That's, that's the, me as a user, I'm, I'm um, doing things day to day. Do I have the ability myself right. um, running as a normal user account to, I don't know, to delete a file in, in my Windows directory or, or whatever? Right. But it seems like a natural extension of that. Make the operating system smart enough to know whether software was run from a stack that started with a user's uh, UI or by some other code. You know, it seems like, well, you know, to, to make something foolproof would be, would be challenging, but it seems like a natural extension of that, being able to walk the stack and, and looking at stuff. Yeah, you'll you certainly see a lot of enhancements in this area. Um, right. Also, the, the whole idea around um, having to be an administrator to to install applications and it, there's, there's yes. a lot of work we're doing to make that whole experience a lot more seamless right. and to also um, be a lot more sensible about the the environment that a user is operating in and, and, yeah. and what they should be able to do and what they shouldn't be able to do and how to manage a box much more effectively. And yeah, we, we're, we're dealing with the legacy of where, of where we've come from. Right. Before the internet, People didn't really worry about um, security issues because if you've just got a standalone machine, you know, you need somebody to come up and, you know, right. knock you over the head before they have access to the machine. But when right. everything's plugged into the Internet, things change, you know, and the Internet is like the seediest environment you, you're ever going to be in, right? Right. No, it's true. <laughs> and you, you, have to, you have to take steps to protect yourself against that. And, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a not tough challenge. challenge. One, of, one of the criticisms, again, that, that, that we have with Microsoft Software nowadays is that giving users choices and giving them dialog boxes, you know, do you want to, do you trust this certificate? You shouldn't really present the user with a choice if you can help it. You, you should right. be making intelligent decisions for the user where it makes sense. And I suppose Click Once does that nicely by just asking allowing the user to authorize themselves once and then using that authorization to authorize other things. I agree. You know, the last thing that your mother knows is whether or not to execute, you know, fireworks.exe that she got from her aunt and, oh, it's okay because it came from my aunt. Well, she doesn't know, you know, where aunt got it from or whatever. So, yeah, I agree. P presenting users with, you know, do you want to play Russian roulette? Do you want to play? Do you want to? Screw your system. Take a chance. Sure. I don't so, are, are there smart. other things you do you want to cover in the call, like um, some of the what the other guys are doing? Uh, any future stuff around? Did we talk about R two yet, or a little bit? Let's. Uh, we just introduced it, so why don't we talk about R two? It was the first I've heard of it tonight, actually. So let's talk about R two. What is that exactly? Well, R two is the release, the second release of uh, Windows Server two thousand three. It's mm -hmm. based on Service Pack 1 of Windows Server, as Stephen Woodward uh, talked about. Yeah. Um, my 
I work mostly with a few of the features that are going to be available on R2, one of them being ADFS or Active Directory Federation Services. Mm -hmm. And basically what that will provide is for corporations to create business-to-business partnerships um, where um, an employee of one enterprise can basically access um, resources, uh, software resources from another uh, corporation across the internet mm-hmm. using single sign-on, basically using the mm-hmm. same um, digital identity that describes that user within his own company. Mm-hmm. He can access those resources provided by another partner across the internet. Nice. Is this this kind of like an evolution of what you guys are trying to do with .NET My Services, maybe? Or a scaling down of it? Letting... I would say it's part of it. Uh, this is mostly geared towards business-to-business type of partnership or relationships more than a consumer, you okay. know, business-to-consumer type of uh, environment, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's part of it. Okay. That's one of the differences between that and Passport, for instance. Right. Neat. And again, SP1 coming out next year, R2 coming out sometime after that. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so so just on times, the the idea is that um, R2 of Windows will will ship sometime towards the end end of next year. Okay. Um, so, you know, and clearly SP1 will ship closer to, to the beginning of, ne- of next year. Uh, but obviously we're not, we're not to a point yet where we can give you a, a formal release date. Okay. Are there any other Windows server-based or server-like operating systems coming out that we can talk about? Or is this just the, the single well, one, line one, of servers? One interesting um, sort of change that we, we're looking at is... is the area around um, what we call HPC or high performance computing, mm-hmm. um, you know, where where people you know build a a very large cluster um, based on you know low price commodity machines. Hmm. Um, hmm. You know, there's a lot of that going on, particularly in the 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 scientific uh, areas. Yeah, and so we will actually ship a release uh, of of Windows. Uh, towards the end of next year, uh, which will be be focused on those those small st- style, you know, thousands of machines in a, in a single cluster. Now, I got a question about this because this is fascinating to me. Do I have to have software that takes advantage of that particular cluster, or can I just simply make a multi-threaded application, and will the OS delegate those threads to those different machines automatically? Okay. Um, so, I mean, the main the main way this works is that um, there is a, a high performance transport that is used, and one of the one of the features that's uh, one of the, the, the key parts uh, of this uh, this version of the operating system is is, is MPI. Uh, and MPI mm-hmm. is a is, as I said a very lightweight API that provides that that quick interchange between applications. Um, you know, and that that call could be potentially between uh, a different process, but also it could be between a different uh, machine within the same cluster. Okay, but but you specifically have to code for it. It's not like I could take Adobe Premiere 
which is taking forever to uh, render some special effect on a movie, and, you know, which is going to take days and just run it on a cluster and it's magically going to go faster. Right. There will be, well, there will be some work to obviously use, use for example, the MPI stack and make yeah. sure you start to re-architect that application to, to be cluster aware. Got it. So there, is, there is some work, but also there are, you know, you talk about one area like Adobe, but you can also imagine the, the concepts of being able to, you know, take uh, or build a, a query that needs to mm. query, you know, an absolutely enormous database. Yes. and bring back a very small result set. And yeah. clearly we think, you know, in the commodity market, this is an area where we think HPC computing uh, could really could really, uh, could really, really set off. You said in the ecology market? No, it's in the commodity market. Commodity market, okay. And uh, to add to the HPC story, the next generation of Visual Studio, Visual Studio 2005, will have support for uh, this HPC environment by importing technologies like OpenMP. And you were talking earlier about this multi-threaded application that that may take forever to do something, even though it's multi-threaded. you will have to do something in your code, mm. but uh, what we've what we've seen here in in demonstrations is all you have to do is let the operating system know, let the infrastructure know that you are multi-threaded and that you can uh, work on shared resources by mm. adding one statement to your code to your code section. You know that is multi-threaded wow. and recompile the application. That's it. That's well. Uh, in some cases, that's just it. Yes. Wow, that's sweet. <laughs> I'm seriously that. That's exciting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm geeking out here, man. That's that's really amazing, because you know I've I've looked at some of the third party APIs for you know accessing clusters and and all this kind of stuff, and it just seems like ridiculously complex. And leave it to Microsoft to simplify it for the developer. That's that's awesome. And for for HPC, this is we are well new and not really new to HPC. We do high performance computing on 32-bit and on on Itanium for quite mm-hmm. some time, but with only with a very very limited number of customers and very uh, small, uh, very little number of deployments. Yeah. But um, the HPC edition will ship later next year or as the plan is at least today, uh, will support in the beginning only the 64-bit platform. So mm. HPC and 64-bit, this story goes hand-in-hand hand for Microsoft. Oh, that's great. And are you guys engaging any of the uh, the video content guys and uh, you know that are doing this kind of thing for, for multi-threaded cluster API stuff? Absolutely, yes. We have uh, already made contact a couple of uh, months ago with some of the major players in this area, and some of them have already been in another lab here on campus in helping them understanding our plans, helping them migrating their application, tuning their applications for our coming HPC release. And I don't know if I can say this or not, and we'll edit it out if you say no, but um, I did some consulting for Avid up in Massachusetts, uh, who does the... um, you know, Adobe Premiere like uh, movie editing, video editing software, and they were just getting into .NET then, and that was a couple years ago. So, I imagine that this will be great news for them if they're indeed thinking of making their application a managed code app. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, 
Fantastic. All right. Well, um, uh, Jean Paulo. Yes. I think it's it's your turn, man. Woohoo! <laughs> so J2EE to .NET migration, uh, and Lord knows there's a lot of it going around these days. Yes, absolutely. So the things, one of the, the great feedback that I got from um, from this workshop was, was attended mainly by by external partners. So that was not a, uh-huh. a Microsoft event. So that was a Microsoft event, but the attendees were mostly non-Microsoft, so mm-hmm. mainly partners that have direct uh, contact with customers and 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 and, and ISVs. Is that there is a very highly increasing demand on on migration capabilities. Uh, mm-hmm. So one one thing that that started a few years ago, uh, when .NET uh, basically came out, was the, all these Java guys being very reluctant in uh, in embracing .NET. Um, right. A lot of the Java guys uh, in 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 G2E in, in a couple of a couple of years after that were perceiving Microsoft as a, a non-player in the enterprise. Uh, they were looking at Com stuff and not understanding Com Plus, not understanding all these technologies, and say, you know what? Those guys are, are not for me. So um, we initially uh, initiated dialogue with those guys a few years ago around the interrupt message. So you yeah. guys can keep your investments the way they are. You guys can basically run your application, just give a try on .NET, start doing some very uh, cool stuff, maybe on the desktop or maybe on the web on, on, on .NET, right. and just interrupt with with with, uh, with Java. Yeah, one of our one of the guys who's been on the show twice now, Ted Neward is a big .NET interop guy. He's played in both Java and .NET worlds as yourself. And, uh, and in fact, we just got done doing a nice talk with him and Don Box and uh, some other people about that. Yes, absolutely. But but that got us only started. So the thing is what was extremely helpful in the interop is that a lot of enterprises and ISVs got to experience uh, .NET. Yes. And so yep. what's happening now is that with the uh, .NET maturity becoming a very high and a lot of evidence that .NET is, is enterprise class, that .NET is used in very large projects, then um, the the, uh, the the barrier of or the perception of staying on Java just because it's the only enterprise class environment is disappearing. So mm-hmm. now that this barrier is not existing anymore. Uh, yeah. A lot of people are interested in going to .NET for the, the good reasons, such as the productivity you gain, the fantastic IDE Visual Studio, but also uh, to take advantage of the entire Windows platform. Uh, you may have a lot of uh, other products are getting a lot of uh, um, traction, such as BizTalk or such as SharePoint. And, yeah. and so a lot of people say, hey, but if we are here using SQL or, or BizTalk or SharePoint, why don't we commit even more to Windows and, and, and basically jump on .NET because the integration with those products will be, will be facilitated, will be higher. So as I was saying, there's a lot of companies, and I cannot name most of them right now, but big names, big banks, and big insurance companies that are really interested in moving a lot of their code, a lot of their assets onto .NET because they perceive that it's going to be much less costly, right. much more productive for their team to maintain that code and, and, and evolve that code uh, onto .NET, especially now that they're embracing service-oriented architecture and they perceive that .NET is a much better platform for web services. Yeah. Uh, Indigo is, is, is coming, so they really want to take advantage of that. So, so uh, what started as an interrupt yeah. game 
is actually becoming a, a, a migration game where basically, right. say, you know what, let's, I wouldn't say ditch it because they, they still want to retain some of their core assets and this is fine so they can interrupt with a very core asset that they want to, they do not want to change. But some of the peripherals, some of the things that they were keeping against their will, so to speak, on Java, that's going to be what's migrating over uh, in the next few uh, months. Okay. Do you, now the migration means obviously like converting the code. Yes. Yeah. Now, con, code conversion is a lot easier from Java to C sharp if you're just talking about you know POJO, plain old Java objects. But but if you're using J2EE, you're using a lot of those enterprise classes and things. How did you know that's that's a rewrite, isn't it? Well, actually, there's a product, the uh, GLCA. It's called the Java Language Conversion Assistant, which mm -hmm. is the, the third release right now, which is, is, is in beta. Uh, uh, actually converts uh, J2EE applications. So okay. um, you can get EJBs, you can have uh, uh, servlet JSPs, you have uh, uh, things like that are moved over uh, using this con uh, conversion assistant. And the average rate that you get out of this project is about 80 to 85% of the code. Hmm, that's pretty good. And obviously, there will be some some manual uh, manual review. Uh, uh, right. You have to have to look at some of the things. But but actually, this is a big big discussion we had in the workshop. And um, you can, if, if the code you start with is actually quite cleanly uh, separated, you have uh, all these concerns, uh, um, uh, you know, encapsulated, and you have a clear UI, a clear business logic, a clear infrastructure code that. Yeah, uh, looks after the, the persistence or the connectivity to other system. You can have a very high conversion rate on some of the business logic because at the end of the day, the business logic is not taking it. You know, it's not doing any persistence. It's just many manipulating lists and doing some number manipulation and and uh, for loops and whatever you. And and the the pieces that are around persistence, the entity beans and things like that, you might have to to think about how to do this. Right. But um, but and and just to complement this information is this, is this is true. There are areas that will be easier to migrate than others, but yeah. we can help uh, in 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 the vast majority of those areas. Uh, this lab that you were just doing, Jean Paulo, what uh, this was a, a a Microsoft lab where some people came and converted their J two E apps. Uh, no, actually, uh, the, the, this lab was a, a, um, a more a train-the-trainer lab. Okay. But the idea here was to train and offer the, the migration capability uh, down to um, many geographical areas okay. that uh, we could equip people uh, you know, in Canada and, 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 and in South, South Africa and in several regions in, in, uh, in the U.S. Um, and, and being able to, uh, to, to offer locally um, migration, migration knowledge, migration consulting, and, and migration uh, um, help with the local guys. So the idea is, was really to train 20 top guys um, to have uh, that capabilities replicated, basically a scale-out sort of uh, program. So instead of having customers to come here to Redmond every time they want to do some migration, if we help and, and teach the, the best practices, the patterns that they have to go through, and also the, uh, the tools that we have uh, to migrate uh, to, to, to other trainers, then um, ISVs can basically work with, with them yeah. locally to migrate their application. Okay. Cool. And, and has it been going well? 
Oh, fantastic! I'm actually um, you know compiling the the the, the feedback. Uh, what 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 Volker was talking, I was looking at the feedback forms. Oh, okay. And uh, and, uh, and and actually, they were very very happy. Many of those were uh, were not aware of how how deeply and and how good our tools are actually in that in that area. Right. So they were aware of of most of the guidance that we provided them with in terms of uh, the mappings. Yes. What J2E construction idioms look like on the .NET space? What of what are the patterns? That are common on J2E will be implemented on .NET. Uh, they right. were quite aware of that, but they didn't know how much help they can get from from uh, from the conversion assistant, but also like uh, J Sharp itself. There is yeah. Uh, yeah. a lot of um, interest from from many of the guys there to really take full advantage of the J Sharp uh, functionality and basically recompiling most of the code as is, even though J Sharp plays some sort of a niche uh, market. Right, I was going to say, what, why not just convert to C-sharp? Well, well, the thing is, there they will be, they will be uh, a lot of uh, hybrid migration. So once you, you, you assess and you look at the code you have, there will be areas that, uh, because they take advantage of the uh, enterprise in, um, uh, edition things, or EJBs, or, or things like that, or because they, took, uh, they, they use Swing or whatever, you, okay. uh, where yeah. J-sharp is not capable of, of, of of compiling, mm-hmm. then you can do JLCA. But if okay. you then look at some other areas of, of the application, especially around the business logic, where, as I said before, most of the, or very often, business logic, if, if, if encapsulated properly, um, is, is basically plain, plain language features. So mm-hmm. if statements and loops and, and things like that, um, and, and lists and hash tables and whatever you, that is actually very uh, easily compilable by J Sharp and once you have the DLL on the other side, you have the, 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 the code that was uh, ported by the JLCA reference, the J Sharp uh, produced DLL and things like that. So you can basically have, have, have a you know, different approach based on what you want to migrate within this, the single, a single project. Cool. That's cool. Well, I don't really know much about Java, so I'm just sort of nodding my head and saying, well, that sounds good, but I'm sure the you know the listeners who are Java savvy will understand exactly what all that means. One thing also I want to to take a, the opportunity to to communicate through this radio show is that if any of you guys out there are interested in Java migration, we 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 can help. We have programs, we have technical resources, we have uh, a lot of uh, we have teams dedicated to uh, help you out in that in the initiative, and and you won't regret it. So, okay. so I don't know. Getting let's get some resources out there, some links. Um, starting with you, um, Jean Paulo. Mentioned my fantastic blog with my two posts. Okay. I promise. <laughs> I promise my, my my manager. Promise Neil there will be much more um, serious about about blogging. But I, I will be also be putting in, uh, together a, a a lot of, of content that can be used offline. But one of the best places to start with is go to uh, actually two places. One is to go to uh, um, uh, msdn.microsoft.com slash Java. Mm-hmm. You will have a lot of information there. And okay. a lot of information will also be part of the msdn.microsoft.com slash ISV site, okay. where there will be a lot of uh, technical enablement information uh, around Java migration and all the uh, Windows-related technologies. So once again, msdn.microsoft.com slash Java or slash uh, ISV. Okay. And how about um, 64-bit resources? 
Okay, 64-bit. 64-bit. I have a blog, blogs.msdn.com slash V-O-L-K-E-R-W. And resources on the web, um, microsoft.com slash 64-bit. Okay. Great. Uh, (laughs) www.route64.net. I love it. (laughs) And... If you want to learn more about the labs we do where we help ISVs to migrate to 64-bit, there's an email alias, go64 at Microsoft.com. So G-O-6-4 at Microsoft.com. Okay, good. And some in the beginning of the show, uh, Matt Trevor sent us a message from the website uh, from Pittsburgh, and it was just a little bit out of place, and I didn't want to interrupt the flow, but... Uh, he asks, can somebody give a brief overview of Adam, A-D-A-M, all caps? Do you know what he's talking about? Yeah, Adam is an uh, Active Directory uh, application mode. Okay. okay. Basically, an LDAP, a standalone LDAP server, if you will. So it's based on the same code of, as Active Directory, but it doesn't have a lot of the network operating system infrastructure aspects of it. Okay. So... It, it won't do that like the integrated security uh, and the single sign-on capability with um, within the uh, Windows Enterprise. Okay. But it does offer all the LDAP services. Um, and it's a bit easier to use. Is that the idea? Yeah, the idea is that you can you can uh, set up uh, an Atom instance or multiple Atom instances in one machine. Right, without converting it into a domain controller, so you don't okay. have to okay. deal with all the network issues of having a domain controller running um, in your system specifically for your application. Turning that back to, to, to Java migration, for instance, Adam is actually a very nice uh, uh, service to have because, um, as you, you know, people who know about Java and J2E, they do a, they heavily depend on a on a directory service. There's a lot of calls made to the uh, what's called the JNDI the Java mm-hmm. uh, naming and directory interface. And and before Adam, it was not extremely easy to map that concept mm-hmm. onto .NET. So with Adam around, then a lot of the, the, a lot of the way uh, Java developer code and taking advantage of directory services in most of their application can, can actually mm-hmm. take advantage of Adam being around and things like that. That's cool. Great. Well, you guys, it's been uh, great talking to you. Do do any of you have any last-minute words of advice or for the listeners or calls to action, maybe, that we didn't get mentioned? Right, move to Windows. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for 64-bit, 64-bit is, uh, well, unavoidable. Right. And uh, let's, let's hope that... Uh, those applications come out to support it. And, you know, that a lot of that has to do with our listeners, the .NET uh, community, um, making sure that they're 64-bit aware and especially doing multi-threading applications um, on large clusters and things. Well, on behalf of myself and uh, Rory, I know you're out there somewhere in Vegas having fun. And Jeff Maciolik in the sound room. And all the listeners listening live, thanks very much for coming on .NET Rocks, guys, and I hope to meet up with you someday soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you.